Sophie, are you okay with being disliked? Why? Who said something? Who said they didn't like me? <laughs> Why wouldn't they like me? Why would you bring that up? I try so hard. I'm Abby Wamba. I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm a writer. I'm a parent. I'm a partner. I'm a. Is this is a? This You're a is bitch. A, You're a. Yes, lover. I'm a bitch. Yeah. I'm a lover. And uh, now I'm a podcaster with you on this podcast. Who are you? I'm Sylvia Hagen. I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm an author. I have a dog. Oh, I also have a dog. Okay, then I have. Uh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Stand-up comedian has a dog. I was trying to find any other identity. And now I have a new podcast with you, Abby. Yeah! This podcast is called Help Hole. Help Hole. And people won't even believe how long it took us to decide that. But it it really is called Help Hole, and we really like that. It does sound like the kind of name where it's like, hey, Abby, do you want to do a podcast? Yeah, should we call it Help Hole? Yeah, sure. Okay, let's do it. Not, we had a four-page long document where we were like, should we call it What About? <laughs> Someday we will, as a mini episode, just release us reading aloud the list of potential names for Hellpole. I don't know, because then people are going to be like, why didn't you call it <laughs> this thing? And we'll be like, yeah, yeah, that's a good point, actually. <laughs> uh, it's called Hellpole, and we'll be reading books that can help us improve as people. Mm. Uh, so that's not just self-help books. It's also books that can s- self-help us. <laughs> that's the thing. That's, I know I'm standing by that. And then you can take, we take away from the books what we think could help us become better people. And then you can take away from the podcast what you believe can help you as a person. Yes. And yeah. You don't have to read these books. The books that we're talking about, don't read them before you listen to this. Unless you already read them, then that's fine. But it's not your homework. It is our homework to one of us will read these books. We will explain what we found useful from them to the other person. You will listen to that. Then afterwards, if you want to read the book, great, great, read the book. But it's not your homework. We're not going to make you do something you don't want to do. Yeah, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. And only one of us will have read them. I think that's an important thing to say. So we're taking turns. It's my turn first. So we're going to start with my book first. Sophie, why are we doing this podcast, though? Why did we start this podcast called Help Hole? We we started this podcast called Help Hole because we've been friends for a while, a couple of years. And it's one of the things we have in common is that Mm. we love these books. I read a lot of self-help books. I love trying to do things better, also just by being a person better. And we read these books a lot, but we weirdly don't read the same ones. No, we really don't. It's very different. Also, there'll be dogs and stuff in the background. Hanky, stop. Not now. I really feel like (laughs) sure that people are going to clearly identify. Like you're gonna know that that's a Hank bark. You're gonna know if Bobby makes noise. It's gonna. It's a. They have a very. They have clear different vocal ranges. Yeah, they're Um, very different dogs. They could be really like start a really cool dog chorus. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) I don't read books like Sophie. I read books. The ones I read and like truly next to my bed, there's a pile of these books right now, and they're like about writing and the creative process and quitting things like booze and screens and. Sometimes they're about being a better parent. I like ones about, like, learning real life skills that I um, I don't have and, um, you know, just feeling better about myself and this state of everything. I love books about trauma. <laughs> Big into trauma. Love a trauma book. 
love stuff about relationships. I love the sort of, what's it called, socio-political, like, anti-fatness and feminism and That's I like so money great. books. Like I'm not reading those books. At finances. No, I, so I will. I will yeah. read them so you don't have to. <laughs> Did you say finances at the end? That's Yeah, great. I like finances stuff. Perfect. Like, I, need, I need finances stuff. How's it get better at money? Yeah, They're all called things like girl boss. I also, I'm trying to find stuff at the moment about biology in terms of like nutrition, but stuff that isn't covered in mm-hmm. anti-fatness and stuff like that. So, Well, I really like that literally there's not one thing that you said that I uh, also want to read about. So we really <laughs> can, we can really well, you cover. Well, the books you read, I really wish I wanted to read. Uh-huh. So um, yeah. this works really well for me. Yeah, between all of us, we like to read every every single self-help book, yeah. half each, and that's really nice. And and I think it's really important to say that I read these books. I, I don't know if it's the same for you, Sophie, but I read them the same way that I read horoscopes, the same way that I read, unfortunately, all science, and that is that I read it with curiosity and an open heart, and then I completely discard everything I don't like understand or doesn't immediately serve me as something like that trying would be useful. So I just, and that's how I can get through them. And when I was younger, I couldn't read these books because I found the other stuff too cringy. And now I'm just like happy to cringe and move on. You know what I mean? I think I too quickly discard books if it feels cringy or if it feels not really for me. Mm-hmm. I think what this podcast will do is that I will actually finish them and then yeah. I will be able to do that and just take away the things that I like and then not use the stuff where I'm like, mm. Yes. <laughs> and a good thing about this podcast is that you can listen to this in public and no one will know. When you read these books in public, if you're reading them in a physical copy, like it is, I find it embarrassing. I keep these books at home. I have before. If I want to take a book with me, I have covered the front with tape so that people don't know what I'm reading and I don't have to like engage with them about their thoughts about what self-help book I'm reading. You don't have to do that on this podcast. You can listen then later if you think it is worth the embarrassment, then you can read it. Maybe we should even put Joe Rogan on our podcast cover (laughs) so people can't even look over their shoulder and they'll be like, oh, it's a cool bro listening to cool bro stuff. It's not some loser listening to Hop (laughs) Hole. You're really good at the the song. (laughs) I've learned all the lyrics to it already. It's a really good song. Hop Hole. Okay, so we're starting this first episode with one of your books, Abby. So I'm going to be listening. Yes. And my book is really going to practice that muscle of discarding what we don't like and just like honing in on what we do. It's a good first book for us because we have to use that skill. Because today I will present to you The Courage to be Disliked. It's by Ishiro Kishimi and Fumitake Koga. Have you read it? No, I have not. Great, because that's the premise of the podcast, Sophie. (laughs) (laughs) Even if I had, I would have forgotten it, but I actually haven't. I forget everything, by the way, so that's why we have a we have a wonderful producer, Amanda, whose main job is going to be saying, you already told this story. <laughs> Stop talking. That's a really useful thing for you. You've already covered do. this book. <laughs> <laughs> you just did it last week. Oh. Okay. Well, first I want to talk to you about why I chose this book. It's called The Courage <laughs> to be Disliked. I read it for the first time a year ago and, like you mentioned, completely forgot everything that was in it. 
I remember that I like gleaned some helpful tidbits that I wasn't obsessed with it, but we made a list of books that we would like to do. And we were like, this could be a good one to start with. But I chose this book last year because I um, went into January 2023 and I set like an intention and my intention for the year, I'd been doing stand-up comedy for a couple of years and I was like, okay, and it was going well. And I was like, this is the year I have to build an audience. So then in January of last year, I released 10 clips of stand-up. I don't really like social media. I'm going to read some books about it. And I was like, I just got to put some clips out there so that if I want to book some things, I like can just point people to my social media and it's out there. And this is what you have to do. You have to put yourself out there. And that was the pep talk I gave myself. And then I put these 10 clips out and the algorithm liked me and went from like 1,000 Instagram followers to 70,000 Instagram followers in the month of January. So like the audience thing was check all done. Someday we'll have to read the secret on this show. But I was like, <laughs> whoa, that happened really fast. I should feel great. And there were moments that I felt great. But in most of the time, like even though like 100 people would say really nice things, follow me and like my stuff, if like one person said something mean, I fixated on that so much more. It was so upsetting to me. That time from like January to March or April, I really remember as like a really hard time emotionally for me, even though I got exactly what I said I wanted. And it was because some people didn't like me and it, I hated it. Has anyone ever um, not liked that, you, Sophie? Well, that, no, no. I've, <laughs> I, I've existed for 13 years as a fat <laughs> woman presenting. I'm not non-binary. <laughs> person on the internet with strong opinions about uh-huh. the patriarchy so no everyone people fully love loves you everything right I, everything i say so only especially on youtube oh love people me on youtube love you on youtube <laughs> i think i remember like the first trolling happening baby's first trolling is super hard but i think for me then as the years went on there were certain types of people i just i just couldn't care about them because they were just they were just stupid like what they said was stupid but there's, there's still some things that can get to me. And I also think sometimes it doesn't even matter what they say. It's just feeling the attack happening. Every time you take a notification, you're like, oh, God, is it something bad? And like TikTok is real bad for this. Sometimes it, the volume of it can hurt. And the fact that it's happening can be distressing, distressing, distressful. Whatever. Yeah. Second language. I'm going to mention that right up, right up top <laughs> for me, not for you. You have no excuse. No, that's um, good. I like to feel superior. So I learned <laughs> that from this book, too. <laughs> so you started reading the book because you wanted to not be affected by. Yeah. When you described that thing, like, oh, like a lot of them are just so stupid. I don't even care. I wanted that feeling so bad. I wanted to not care so bad. And I really cared. I really cared because I think, too, you become a stand up comedian or I did anyway, because actually what I am really good at is making people like me. I'm great at it. Mm. If you're in the room with me, I am paying very close attention to what I can do to make you like me and adjusting my, and I even found this difficult from going from just like personal interactions to being on stage. Because when you're on stage, you can see a room full of people 
And even if 90% of them are having a great time, for me, it was really hard to stop looking at the one or two or five that weren't. I just like zoned right in on them. I did not like that experience. And even if the set went great, I went off, I was thinking about them. And I was at this point on my internet career, my one month internet career, I think I must have literally Googled the words like books so that you don't care as much about people liking you. (laughs) Yeah. I was about to just say all of the thoughts I have about how I think one could solve that problem, but I don't need to because we have the authors of your book to tell us the actual advice, right? Oh my God. I'm really just like, let's change the podcast. You just tell me what to do. That would be so, you did actually at the time we were friends. You gave me a lot of really helpful voice notes. I remember one that was like, even if you know not to care, it's like watching a tiger chase someone and being like, don't pay attention to the tiger. And I think I tried to repeat that to a few people, and now I have done it on a <laughs> podcast. And it, uh, I don't think I'm saying it right, but it really helped me. I was like, yeah, because that, that was kind of the thing echoing in my head is like, why do I care if I know I shouldn't care? Why do I want to explain myself? And that's what I wanted. I really wanted all the people that said anything negative about me, and none of them said I wasn't funny. That's an important thing that I really zoned in on. They didn't like me for personal reasons, and I was like— I think I could convince you. That's really how I felt. What if I just wrote to this one person and I was like, listen, I think you'd really like me. I really wanted to. I wanted to tell them how likable I was. And I recognized, first of all, that's not how you drive engagement. Second of all, (laughs) you can't live your life like that. So I tried reading this book and this is what happened. So this book, it's called The Courage to be Disliked, Perfect, really came up quick on my internet search. It is, I have to open the door for my dog. I'm sorry, guys. Bobby, relax. Did you say Abby, relax? I said Bobby, but it isn't it cute that our names are almost the same? It is quite cute. I guess so. All right, this book is based on the teachings of Alfred Adler. And Alfred Adler is an Austrian medical doctor, psychotherapist, and the founder of the School of Individual Psychology. And he was contemporary of Freud's. A lot of times people apparently will think he was a student of Freud's. They were around the same age. I don't know if they were actually friends, but they were certainly in the same circles. And they had really differing views of the way that you should look at things. And then Alfred Adler's emphasis on like the importance of feelings of belonging, family constellation and birth order. This guy's big on birth order. All the stuff you hear about firstborns and only children and stuff. Yeah, he started all that. He was really different from Freud in that Freud has a lot of emphasis on, I didn't know this before. I'm not like a psychology junkie, but Freud's very much the past, right? And it's all from your mother and, you know, like, and this is why you are this way because of the past. And Mm. the big thing about this book is that Alfred Adler is very much every moment is a new moment and the past you only use as an excuse to create your future. So you're really going to love how this starts, Sophie. I know that you're really... Going I feel to love rage this. bubbling. It's rage bubble. <laughs> rage bubbles within already. Get excited. The rage like, listen, gonna there's bubble. a lot a lot of stuff wrong with Freud. I'm not gonna like defend Freud. I did once have a little action figure of Freud. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sophie Hagen, Team Freud. I had slippers that were Freud slippers, so it was 
Freudian slippers. I oh, thought that was so funny. Cute. Because that's... there was a time in my life where liking psychology was uh, my main personality trait, which uh-huh. fortunately, happily, we have <clears throat> completely moved <clears throat> past now. <laughs> really could have used that in the intro list of things about you, though. So <laughs> maybe you want to think about adding that Big back surprise in. to the audience. Sophie I Hagen. actually really like stuff about <laughs> psychology. <laughs> Sophie Hagen, comedian, has a dog, likes psychology. That's a good intro. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let me tell you about this book. It's annoying. I mean, no, the book, the beginning part really is going to piss you off. You need to practice being okay with that pissing you off and moving on because a lot of stuff in this book is really great. The way the book is written is so awful. It's so irritating. It's written as a dialogue, like a Socratic dialogue. So these two guys that wrote the book, Ishira Kishimi and Fumitaki Koga, they wrote the book because they're big fans of Adler. They wanted more Adler out in the world, and Adler didn't really document a lot of his thinking. He was more like Socrates and that he, I'm just, listen, I'm just having the conversations. And then... <laughs> I'm just asking the questions. Listen, I'm just asking What's big wrong? questions. You can't... <laughs> And then Plato <laughs> really was dislike the one. Guy. I, just, I was just told about the existence of. I'm not Socrates. You never heard of him? Listen, no, if you I've like psychology, I, have I got somebody for you? <laughs> no, no, that we're not going into never touching philosophy on this podcast. I cannot handle it in my head. Oh no, this is a lot of philosophy touching. But okay, I guess these I mean, that guys was long lasting. It <laughs> was a long lasting <laughs> promise. <laughs> Maybe next year. Okay. Um, so these two guys, one of them is like a psychologist who is trained in this kind of psychology and practices this kind of counselor. That's Ishiro Kishimi. And the other guy, Fumitake Koga, he's a writer who's just a fan. He's a fan of Adler. And he wants to write this book. He approaches this living psychologist who's a an expert in Adler. And they write this book together. And they frame it as a conversation between a philosopher who is known for saying that life is simple and anyone can choose to be happy at any moment, and a youth who... Uh, we don't like philosophy in this house. Eh, we don't like philosophy in this house. And a youth who is skeptical. A skeptical mm. youth. Okay. And there is like this conversation that goes on throughout the book where they sort of say that it's, you know, it's commonplace to go traipsing around questioning philosophers in your youth. I remember in my hot-blooded youth when I was traipsing around questioning philosophers. (laughs) And this book, I kept checking. I kept checking. I was like, when was this written? When was it? 2013. 2013, people were traipsing. Okay. It's a Japanese book. Maybe I don't know a lot about Japanese culture. Maybe there's more traipsing happening then, more questioning of philosophers. There's a lot of talk about the traipsing, the common traipsing to philosophers' homes. Have you ever traipsed? Mm, not in 2013. <laughs> I think uh, I traipsed more in sort of my my young young teens, perhaps. Okay. Traipsing around. Traipsing around. Just traipsing around. I was questioning around. teachers a lot. Is that the okay. same? Okay. Maybe. I mean, maybe, really. That's, yeah. I was, just being, but I was just being an annoying little prick who was like, why do I ever need maths for anything? I bet you weren't that annoying. I bet you should no, give really yourself. Was. 
I don't know. I really, really was. Okay, I have a different question about this that we would talk about on another episode. But I think when people are obnoxious about themselves as young people, they are obnoxious about young people in general. And I do, like, push back on it a little bit. Like, I think you should give yourself a little credit as a young person that was questioning things because otherwise you're going to turn into an old person that's like, young people are dumb. And we wouldn't want that to happen in, a, in the future. Whereas what? now, I love, I love, the, I love the, I love the youth as a culture. I really do. I love the generation. I just don't want to. I just don't want to sit near them on a bus. That's fine. They don't ride buses anyway. <laughs> the youth don't ride buses. Is no, that no, no. Buses are for old people. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> Well, <laughs> all right. Anyway, anyway. Okay, okay, okay. I don't know exactly in the beginning of this book what my problems with it are. Some of it is my problem with the philosophy of it. Some of it is my problem with the way that it is written. I'm really annoyed by the way that it is written. It's a lot of the youth asking a question, the philosopher saying an answer, and then the youth repeating the answer, which drives me crazy. It's just a way that they devised of saying the same thing twice and. If it were a script, it would be like a terrible script. It would be like a high school assembly script for like why not to have sex before marriage. It's like, hey, Jimmy, I don't think we should have sex. Say, are you sure about that? You don't think we should have sex because sex is good, I think. Things like that. (laughs) And then just like back and forth on the same topic. You're from... America. I'm from America. Yes. We had okay. things like Just, that. Yeah. yeah. There were, <laughs> there were I know the reference. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard? Oh, right. You're Danish. You know when you Have make you school heard plays no about sex? not having sex. No, I don't. No, I don't. Uh, doesn't ring a bell. <laughs> More than one time in this book, the youth says, as an argument to what the philosopher says, the youth exclaims, that is pure sophistry. That's <laughs> the youth and their language. <laughs> yeah. And I had to what look up that? sophistry. sophistry. What's sophistry that? is, it means clever and subtly deceptive argumentation. And it sounds a lot like Sophie, don't you think? I'm just. Is it from it so- sophism? Sophism, that's a thing. Prob- probably. I don't know. Sophist- I didn't look up that. Sophistic. I don't know. Anyway. We'll get to that. It's pure sophistry. Okay, so the book is broken down into five nights that the youth visits the philosopher to ask him questions about his theory. Are you ready for the first night? Please. The first night, the topic, the name of this whole chunk of the book is deny trauma. Deny trauma. Deny trauma. Sophie, what is your understanding of what trauma is? Am I now meant to deny Deny it? Is this a trick question? <laughs> no, no, no. I'll talk you into that later. <laughs> uh, okay, so trauma, psychological trauma, is when you experience something that is so extreme or extremely distressful that it has lasting effect. It's something that you can't really... Co- it affects your ability to cope with something. So you can have, from like a single incident, you can have post-traumatic stress disorder, where you you have a lot of symptoms of that. But if it's like long-lasting, so it's like, for example, like a bad childhood or like an abusive marriage, you can have CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress syndrome, where it's, it's more complex and varied. Am I correct in assuming you believe in trauma? Uh, do I believe that the sun is real? <laughs> yes. I believe in the very real 
existence of trauma? No. Oh, okay. Oh, well. <laughs> Let me go and clear out two-thirds of my bookcase then and put it into a, a fiction section. I gotta say, this part of the book is the hardest to get through. It's the hardest to accept. And the basis of this section is that trauma doesn't exist and that every moment is a new moment. And if you are building your life based on what happened, you are entirely making the meaning of what has happened and you can decide what effect that has on you. What do you think? I think we should uh, gather up all people who are mentally ill and depressed and uh, we should, uh, is it called wag a finger or waggle a finger? (laughs) It's waggle now. It's waggle now. (laughs) We We shall waggle a finger and say, oh, listen, guys, how about you try smiling? And then everything's fine. And then I, I'm pretty sure everyone will just be super happy. Yeah. The, the rage I feel when people say stuff like this is, um, it's not good. It's not, it's, not a nice, it's not a nice feeling of rage. No, I think that this is kind of the biggest thing in the book that is just like indefensible that I don't agree with, mm-hmm. that I'm just like, okay, if this is the foundation, I can't really go any farther. But I think that you can move past this in this book if you want to get other things from it by thinking of it like, all right, you can choose how you respond to trauma. You can deal with trauma. You can have an experience and then look at it and decide how to move forward. It's a lot more challenging than looking at every moment as a single piece of time. But if we want to continue reading the other four nights, we have to do something. Later in the book, the philosopher gives an example of himself and his relationship with his father, who's now dead. The philosopher's an old man. And he said that he had a really difficult relationship with his father. And the youth asks him why he had an, a difficult relationship with his father. And then he says, the memory that comes to me when you ask me that question is one of him hitting me and me hiding from him and him trying to find me. Which which Bobby wants to step in here. Oh, that's so cute. I know. He Hank has never father. done that. He's never, like, howled. He's only back. Bobby. Barked. Bobby. Ah, ah, ah. Sorry, we just Oh, have that's to so cute. That's so nice of you. I think it's awful. Bobby, yes, did you see a He's dog? singing. You're so brave. Okay, when he's asked for the memory, he remembers being hit and hiding from his father father and his father, like, trying to find him, which is a scary, traumatic memory. And then Mm -hmm. he says, so if I were looking at this, like, from a Freudian perspective, he uses different words that I'm not even going to try to weave into my life or take up space in my brain with. But if it was, like, a Freudian perspective, that would be the reason for his bad relationship with, with his father, that he was beaten by his father. That's the common understanding of that. In an Adlerian philosophy standpoint, he is conjuring the memory of being beaten by his father in order to keep himself from having a relationship with his father, having a good relationship (laughs) with his father. (laughs) What a silly thing to do. Yeah, he shouldn't do that. What a silly thing to remember how someone treated you badly so that you remember to not have a relationship with that person so you can continue to be treated badly. 
Exactly. So he really does go that far. The way that I'm going to decide to think about what he's saying isn't really what he's saying. He is really saying you have a choice about every experience in your life and how you make it up. And if you are summoning the memories of bad things that happened, it is in order to affect an outcome. And I guess if you even say it like that, I'm so good at explaining this. I should have written this book. But if you say it like that, yes, you are (laughs) summoning that in order to keep yourself safe from your father. Like that is in a way true. But it's like, I think in a lot of this book, they just ignore the other half of it. They Hmm. just like are moving forward. If you could have a good relationship with your father if you wanted, if you just didn't remember that he beat you. But also, one of the symptoms of PTSD or complex PTSD is flashback, emotional flashbacks. So it's not necessarily that you sit down and you make yourself remember things. It is that it will literally pop up as memories in your head or as feelings in your body. So it's like if your dad beat you with a belt and then you see that same kind of belt in a closet, that is literally what it means. And you are triggered Mm. because your body remembers belt, bad, pain. And then your body remembers how that felt. Like that is a symptom of... (laughs) That is a symptom of PCSD that he's describing. And making it sound like it's a choice. And sometimes he's not. Let's say if we want to move forward, we can just accept that he's wrong here. We can also be like, okay, this was 40 times. So when is that? When was he alive? When was 40 oh, that was times? late 1900s, early 2000s. Okay, no. fancy. Early 2000s? No, no. 1900, late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah. He's been dead for 100 years. I skipped years, 100 I years. He's definitely yeah. been dead for 100 years. They weren't a, an important 100, though, Sophie. It's okay. And um, uh, Titanic sank in that in those hundred years. So let's just give him a break because he didn't have any social media. Okay, so the, the science was How not there yet. Him? The social media was not there yet. He didn't know. Like there are physical responses to trauma that I think people like pretty mm-hmm. universally agree to. But there are things about this also that have been useful to me. In this same chapter, he gives an example of someone who his whole life, he's wanted to be a novelist, and he conjures reasons that he can't be writing a novel. This is a pretty normal, believable thing, I think. And the reasons he conjures are like he's too busy with his family, whatever. Yeah, time. It's procrastination stuff. And what the Adler-Lyrian philosophy is, those aren't real reasons. He is summoning them in order to protect himself from the possible reality that he would be bad at it, which for me is like absolutely true about, I think, why I procrastinate about things, why I'm scared to do things is because I'm afraid the outcome won't be as good as the imagining of the outcome that I can do now without doing it. And it's and that is a big tenet of the book that I, I really like. It's like that's the choice you're making at all times. You're making the choice not between what you can do and can't do. It's like what you have the courage to face. I kind of like that. I think if we go to studies of who you should keep yourself safe from, it doesn't work anymore. But the novelist side... <laughs> Of it, I do think. A bit of personal responsibility, which it's all boiled down to, what's it called? Freedom of choice. Do we have freedom of choice? Which is a huge, huge thing to like talk and look into. And I'm not really sure what I mean, uh, what I believe in with that. But I think there's all, 
it so f- quickly begins to feel a bit gaslighty when someone is like, none of your, ex- they're all just excuses because mm. of this. It's also hard to write a novel if you are have a full-time job and you have to look after your family and you run the local gardening center and you whatever and you don't also, have a great intro and could paper. you just add these things could you run the local gardening center please sophie there are so many things the re- actual legitimate reasons why you might yeah. find it difficult to and then it's also true that if you keep repeating the same sort of negative viewpoints to yourself then there are some that are excuses yeah. But I think there's a balance. It's so easy to say everything you say is an excuse where it's like, well, some of it's legit, like a legit struggle. Yeah, I think so, too. I think a point that they decide on making and that's kind of how I feel about through everything in the book, the argument, they just give up on things. And it's just like the youth basically decides to agree to go <laughs> along with it. And I think that is how you make progress in conversations. A lot of the time you can't just be like, but no, but no, but no. It's not written by the youth and the philosopher. It's written, right? by, it's written two by two men. Two yeah, men. but they're agreeing that the philosopher's right. So they are yes. writing. It's a. It's a. It's yeah, like when male comedians yeah. write as TV shows, and they're like, and then this character who is me sleeps with a very attractive hot model, yeah. and she says, "Wow, you are good in this." And it's like, yeah, but you wrote the model saying that, did you? Yeah, and it's also very clear that this is written by two men. This is another time I checked that it was 2013 that this was written because there is the parable of the female student, which is about um, the one female in the whole book, except there's a mother, I think, another time. But there's a female student who comes to the professor because she has a problem blushing around a man that she is in love with. And she has made a rule for herself that she's not going to approach the man until she gets her blushing under control. And she asks the philosopher if he can help her get her blushing under control. So she's like, I'm not going to approach this man that I'm in love with until I solve my problem of blushing. And the philosopher says, I can solve your problem of blushing, but that will be a bigger problem for you because your real problem is fear. And when I solve your problem of blushing, you will have a bigger problem because you will still be afraid and now you will have no excuse to stop yourself. So I'm going to leave you your problem of blushing and then um, you'll have to just figure out to go forward with it or not. So that's the story of the female student. What happens is the male student she's in love with approaches her, tells her he's in love with her, and then the blushing never is a problem anymore because they're in love and whatever, and she never goes back to class. (laughs) And then the youth goes, yes, this sounds like a regular problem for a female student to have. I'm not kidding. (laughs) That is like the only direct quote I'll say from the book. He says that like exact thing. And then from the rest of the book, it's like, remember the problem of the female student? And that's their talk about an actual woman or not an actual woman, a, a fake actual woman. But the weird sexism in that story aside, yeah, that's the first thing you've said from this book where I'm like, oh, I feel that inside of me is like, okay, that's good. I like that. Yeah. There's lots more like Your that. Your problem and- isn't the blushing. The problem is that you're afraid and you're finding reasons why you're afraid. Yes. So if I take that away, you don't know what to pin it on. <laughs> that's the, the point of anxiety, right? I'm like, or like my OCD when I go, oh, do you know what? The reason I can't. 
I, all I need to do now is I need to clear up my cupboards. That's all I need to do. And then I do it and I'm like, oh, gosh, darn it. Yeah. <laughs> Why do I still feel bad? It's like, oh, maybe it wasn't the cupboards. Yeah. I can really relate to that. I think that's really good. I really like that. Okay, great. Uh, you're a sexist. So <laughs> if you tell it to me in a more like really sexist parable, I, that's when it really gets Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. I'll do that from moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, I'll yeah, use some you. pure sophistry on you. But when you were saying freedom of choice, the basic principle of the novel is that real freedom comes from the ability to be disliked, that that is what real freedom is, is that if you go along like a rolling stone and you do what it takes in every situation to meet the expectations put on you by others, that that is not freedom. So the philosopher at some point towards the end of the book says, like, if you gave me a choice of two lives and the lives were one was being liked by everyone, and the other was that some people would dislike me, I would choose every time that some people would dislike me because that is where true freedom lies. And I read that and I was like, oh no, everyone, still, please, everyone, liking me is an option, (laughs) please. But this is a place where I think that it really gets things right. Okay, I'm gonna skip over the second night he visits the philosopher. They talk about how all problems are interpersonal relationship problems. And I think that's another thing you can just like decide to go along with for this book or not, right? So the idea is that if your problem is that you are doing bad at school, really the problem is that you're worried about the shame that will be attached to that and how you'll fit into society later. If the problem is that you don't have enough money, the problem is that you won't be able to fit into society, that every single problem you can think of having is an interpersonal problem. I didn't even want to spend five minutes trying to disprove that because I'm just like, I I don't think that is entirely true, but I think it is more true than we allow it to be. It's one of those things where you could tell me that was true and I'd go, oh, yeah, probably. And then someone else could say, actually, it's not. And I'd go like, "Okay, yeah, probably. Yeah. And that in the same way that the blushing female student protects herself by blushing, you dislike yourself as a way to protect yourself from engaging in interpersonal relationships. So this part of it, I felt was very like comedy. You (laughs) self-depreciate. You like say what's wrong with you so no one else can say what's wrong with you. You find all the shitty things about you so you won't be tempted to put yourself forward and get that feedback back from other people. Yeah, you you try to preempt it. It's stand-up comedy, isn't it? It's like, I know, I know. I know, I I thought it before you did. I thought it before you did. I I know what you're going to say. You're going to say this, but thank God I thought of a reply last night. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And And in this part, he actually does say a thing where it's like, so if you decide, and this is where the freedom of choice being to be disliked, that living in freedom means allowing yourself to be disliked comes up. Because it's like if you're in front of 10 people and you commit your loyalty to being agreeable to those 10 people, that's like kind of doable. You can kind of be likable to 10 people, try to please them. But the bigger the circle gets, the harder it is. And then the more like incongruities you'll find in your life where you are either lying outright or you are bending yourself into knots. And that's the same in stand-up comedy, too. Like, if you're having a conversation with somebody, you can make them very happy and laughing. And then the bigger the audience gets, the more people are either going to not like you or the more bland you're going to have to be. I was like, okay, okay. So then the big pivotal thing that comes on the third night is that what your job is 
is to discard other people's tasks. That all relationships are made up of your tasks in the relationship, your jobs, and the other people's jobs. And your job actually might be to want to be liked. But the what job do you mean by jobs? Like tasks in a relationship. So an example that he uses a lot, he talks about kids a lot, like so much that I had to Google if he had kids because some of the things he <laughs> says about kids, I'm like, I don't think you have kids. He has four kids and he's like a child psychologist. And actually, I like a lot of his thinking about young people. I do. The trauma stuff is what worries me. The stuff about young people, he has a, like a general respect thing for young people, the way that they should be treated, things that I like. For instance, an example he uses is tying your shoes is the child's task. So if you have like a four-year-old child who's learning to tie their shoes and you are like, oh, this is going to go a lot faster if I tie your shoes for you instead of giving that child the time it takes to do their task and just like nosing out of it, you are taking away that child's self-respect, their ability to complete their task, their job, and you're stepping Mm. in to where it's not your job and you need to take care of your job and not theirs. So like oh, that's- so when it's about likability, it is that by trying to be likable, you are taking away the other person's almost like choice or personality by being like, I'm going to be what you need me to be. And then that's almost like lying. It's their job to decide if they like you or not. And you can't do that job for them. And this is what I like about what he says, because I think this conversation about people pleasing is kind of annoying. I would. Yes, I am a people pleaser. Would you say that you're a people pleaser, Sophie? Oh, I definitely have been a lot. And now I think I am not, but I still feel bad when they don't. It's like I don't try to please them, but I still feel bad when they then don't like me. Can I, I'm going to give you the perfect example of like, the, there was like a very pivotal moment where I realized this has to stop. And it was <laughs> when I moved to the UK, I, <laughs> I fell in love with this guy. And then we went on what I thought, I still think it's a date. He claims it wasn't, it was. <laughs> and he was very much like, we're friends. And I was like, well, we're not because we, we're going on all these dates. And he's like, they're not dates. They were. And <laughs> we had seen each other quite a bit. Uh, on these non-dates dates and I then tried to (laughs) this is really bad it's a long time ago I said I have to move back to Denmark oh no so this will be the last time we see each other he was like oh that's such a shame I was like yeah oh dear what do we do it's our last night together is there anything you want to like get out of the way and he offered to drive me home and I was like oh yeah you are and then we drove to mine and then I was like so and he was like oh bye it's been nice knowing you and I (laughs) I shouted why can't you fall in love with me I am (laughs) said why can't you fall in love with me I will be whatever you want me to be (laughs) and he just looked at me like ah Maybe that's the problem. And I was like, yeah, this is a very good point. Anyway, see you tomorrow. I'm not moving. And then I went home. We're still friends today, so everything's fine. Oh, my God. (laughs) You're still friends? Wait, and was moving a lie? Was moving a lie? Yeah, of course it was a lie. Oh, my God. I was desperate. I was so in love. I I should should say they, they're now they. Back then, I very much considered them a he. It was that thing of I had made such 
a deliberate, and I've been like, okay, so they they like this thing and they like that thing. So I'm going to like this thing and I'm going to like that thing. I did everything I possibly could to make them fall in love with me. And they just didn't. And I was just like, I could have been myself and had the same experience. But now I'm like, oh, I failed somehow because I was making <laughs> such an effort to be liked. Where I could have just been myself and we just it would have been quicker, a quicker arrival at the inevitable, which was just platonic friendship. <laughs> so you're not that people pleasy anymore? I would not consciously do that again. Okay. But I cannot speak on behalf of my subconscious. <laughs> I don't I know if chapter five is deny the fact that you have a subconscious, but... It says you can't separate them. It says the individual is as small as you can go. It says, yes, the, sel- the subconscious exists, the consciousness exists, but you have to take responsibility for both of them in your actions, which I don't, I'm, not, sure. I'm okay with. Yeah. 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 That it's like if you're being like, oh, it was my subconscious. It's like, okay, but are people going around doing that? I don't know. I think that's a healthy response to people pleasing. I think that's fine. In general, when the conversation around people pleasing is like, oh, we have to stop people pleasing like i'm always like or everyone else has to start people pleasing why <laughs> why are we the ones that have to do worse i think that a lot of the conversation around healthy boundaries which is a lot of what i think adler's work has turned into the conversation around boundaries feels very connected to what i read in this book and i had this experience in my family my mom read some boundary books when she was going through a hard time when i was a teenager it was reactive boundaries became like not just a clear and gentle boundary but like a an electric fence <laughs> like mm, yes a tripwire. That's what people-pleasing is. It's you're ignoring your own boundaries because they you feel like that might offend people Yeah. if you have the boundaries. I remember when I was a teenager, I did everyone's homework when, whenever they asked. Because I was just like, okay, I'll do it. I mean, first of all, it was super easy for me. And I was bored just doing my own. So it wasn't <laughs> like the worst thing in the world. But it was also so that they would like me. And my therapist at the time was like, you need to learn how to say no. And I was like, but then they won't like me. And she said, well, if they only like you because you are doing a service for them, that's not a real friend. Like you're not making friends from this. The ones that will stay with you as a friend when you start saying no are the real friends. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I was like, but then they'll be really angry with me. And I was expecting her to say, no, of course no one will be angry with you. Mm. She said, yeah, when you start to change your behavior, people are going to be upset because they take it personally. That's like the normal, natural thing to do. They're like, she must be mad at me. So I'm just going to move away a bit. But then after a couple of months, they're used to not being able to ask you to do things for them. Mm-hmm. And then the good people return, and that's it. And I was like, oh. I think that's my first step towards not people-pleasing. I started saying no. And that's very Adlery. I think that that's a specific thing he says that I really like. You are not supposed to go out of your way to be disliked. It's not like—and I am explicitly <laughs> saying, don't try to be disagreeable, but— if in the actions of being your true self, people decide not to like you, that is true freedom. It's, it's like, yes, actually, do try to get people to like you, but you need to continuously make decisions that are for 
you, and that is in the service of the greater good, actually, and whatever. But a lot of his ideas, and he said this, he, like, predicted this about himself, which I think is, like, a really baller move. He's like, I might not be famous in 100 years. I think a lot of my ideas will just seep into the general consciousness. And I was like, what a cool, smooth way to guess that no one will know your name. Very, like, (laughs) smart. Everyone's just going to think like me in the future, so... But it is kind of true. A lot of what he says doesn't even really feel like an idea because it's, you should have boundaries. It's okay to be disliked. This is what I went to this book for. This is exactly the part that I wanted was like the part where it was just like someone repeating the reasons that it's okay for not everybody to like you. So this is where I really started liking the book. And these theories are in a lot of other books that are like self-help books now. Some of them maybe we'll read. Stephen Covey's Seven Habits for Highly Effective People, which is a book that my mom paid me 20 bucks to read when I was 14. And um, (laughs) Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's some uh, some Adlerian stuff in there, apparently. So that was the third night. You want to hear what the fourth night was? Yes, I do. This is the one I wanted so bad. The fourth night is where the center of the world is. And this night is about how you are not the center of the world. And this is what I wanted from the book so bad. I just, I wanted to be like, I'm not the center of the world with like Instagram comments. I was like, why are you here? Why are you commenting on me? I am not the center of the world. And I wanted to be like screaming it both at them and at myself. And this is what that part is. The more uncomfortable you feel in any social dynamic, Basically, the thing you can do to help it is to zoom out to the greater community and like see basically how unimportant you are or the way that you are engaging in a community that's bigger than the one where the problems are. I like that. I do like that. Yes. That feels like exactly what I usually do when it happens to me is the first thing I do is I see them. I try to see this comment that they left on my video in the greater concept of like context of their life. So I imagine them. You know, coming home from a shitty day at work, no one loves them because they're depressed because they have a shitty life. Because you can't imagine someone who is super happy and fulfilled going on to Instagram to be like, you're a piece of shit. (laughs) So I'm imagining them having a really bad life because they somehow must have a bad life. When I am really, truly happy, the very idea of writing a comment on someone else's video would fill me with just (laughs) why. Like there's no, no, no part of me feels comfortable doing that. But when I'm really, really sad, I can put myself in that mindset of like wanting to externalize the pain. Also on Twitter, when you used to be able to see, you'd go to the trolls Twitter account and you could see what else they were commenting on other people. And it was all the same. And you're like, oh, this is just your life. It's just attacking people. And then I would look at myself from like a zoomed out perspective and be like, oh, I have these people in my life who are amazing that I love and they like me. I have my dog. I have this, you know, imagine yourself in the broader scheme of things. And then I would look at my colleagues who are experiencing the same thing. And I'd go, oh, but Rosie Jones gets a lot of abuse online. And I fucking love Rosie Jones. She's amazing and cool and nice. And and then I like look at all these other people who I respect and I go, oh, so I'm part of that as well. We're just like a bunch of people who experience this. That helps a lot, I think. I like that. That's really nice. That, that's the same thing, isn't it? That's assuming. I think it is. I think it's like playing with the perspective of where you are in the world and what matters and, and choosing. This is that part again where it's like every moment is the moment. It's not the past or the future, but it's what you're looking at. I like that kind of stuff. It feels a bit, is it a bit of a niche experience? But there's an episode of This American Life where Lindy West 
who's a, an author who writes about, has written Thrill and written about fatness. And she calls one of her trolls who left oh, a horrific wow. message. And then they have a conversation. Yeah. And it's so cathartic. And it's just her going, that was so painful. And him being like really apologetic. And like I was going through a hard time. And she's like, yeah, but so was I. Like she's mm. not letting him go. She's not saying, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Because she's not British and repressed. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's so helpful to hear that ha- and hear him just be cowering a bit. Being like, oh, yeah, yeah it's going through a hard time. And, you know, I didn't like myself. So I hated that you could like yourself. Yeah, and that is essentially what they're all doing. Like they don't like to see anyone kind of seemingly confident. They're trying to like chop you down. It's like ugh, boring. I think that stuff is really like heartening to see the people who are trolls and how they're really people. Because I come from the a long lineage of thinkers that like I think people in general are good. The people who are being on mean online, I bet in person I could like them, but. This guy would say, you should not do that. You should just let them have their thing, and that's their choice, and that's their task. That you engaging in that is like taking away your freedom. Trying to go into that conversation is just initiating a power struggle. And and Yeah, I like that, too. What do you think happiness is? I think happiness is temporary. I think happiness happens in bursts. I don't think you can have a constant happiness. I think you can have a constant contentness Mm. where things just feel overall kind of nice. I think part of happiness is being able to also feel sad. I don't think you can feel happiness without also feeling sad. So I think happiness is moments of feeling exhilarated about something. When do you feel happy? (sighs) Music can make me feel really happy. Bonding, like connection with people I like. Creating makes you feel happy. Any kind of like comedy. I don't just mean stand-up comedy, but also just like when my dog looks stupid and I laugh. (laughs) Winning. Winning makes me happy, but in like a slightly toxic way. Mm. What about you? Um, Well, I'm kind of fucked thinking about this because I read his (laughs) definition of what happy is. And I've really been, (laughs) I've been turning it over. I I think I'm a pretty happy person. Yeah, connecting to people makes me really happy. That's like the feeling I can tell is happy. Like when I'm talking to someone and we're like all lit up with an idea or something, I can feel that that is really happy. And then the other things I'm like, is that happy or is that excitement? Or is that, you know, his definition of happiness for this, and there's two ways that you can build it. His definition of happiness is the feeling of being useful to others. Yeah, I had, to, I had to turn it over. I was like, I can seek happiness that way. I think that's a good direction to take when I'm unhappy. That has helped me, like, when I'm bummed for a reason that feels really self-centered, to take action that helps someone else, to call someone else and hear about how they're doing, to do something nice for, like, my kids or, like, my friend. That is a way that I can seek it. But I was really thinking about this, and I am a parent. I have two kids. I am useful constantly. (laughs) I am so useful. I am useful, and it does not always make me happy. Yeah. Frequently, I know I am being useful, and I am not happy about it. And I, I have tried different ways of trying that on, and I think that the key to what he's talking about is in the next part, but I'm just like, I don't think that can be it for me. No, do you know what that sounds like? That To me, that sounds like a man who does nothing around the house, and then his wife says, 
can you put up this shelf? And then he postpones that for months. <laughs> and then one day he's like, I'm going to put up the shelf. And then he feels amazing. And she's like, oh, my God, thank you so much. Because she knows she can't be like, well, finally, because then he's going to be pissy. So he, she's like, you're amazing. Thank you so much. You're the best man ever. And then this he's is- like, oh, my God, I'm so fucking good. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's like doing the dishes while breastfeeding <laughs> and uh, cleaning with her one foot on a sponge on the floor. This is another sexist parable that you'll probably really like and take a lot from. He tells another story about a housewife. He talks really well, I think, about how everyone's work is valid and businessmen who belittle their housewives' work are that that is silly and it's just a it's like a an ego thing that's detrimental to everyone and that that work is just as important as whatever they're doing at their company. He says like things explicitly like that. But then he gives this example of a housewife doing her dishes and resenting the children have gone to their rooms and her husband is sitting watching TV and like doing the dishes and resenting doing that labor alone. And then he does make the suggestion, okay, but what if you whistled while you worked? (laughs) Then... It's possible, isn't it, that uh, instead of Imagine resenting being his wife, and everyone, like, please, please just help around the house. He's like, what if you whistled a tune? He's like, I will put poison in your food. She's like, don't you think it would be more likely that the children would come out of their room and want to see what kind of fun she was engaged with and see if they could help? He really says that. That's a real thing. I think if you're going <laughs> to dig for a helpful thing from that, I do yeah. think if I... You know, I can change the way that I do housework, things like that, and, like, tasks I don't want to do. I can usually, if I'm in the, like, right, like, state of mind, make it into a fun thing and have a better time doing it. The idea that that is how you get your children to help you is, you know, it's not entirely inaccurate, but it's also, like— <laughs> that's, not, mm, that's not. I think you need yeah. to relook at whose tasks are whose in this situation. But the yeah. way that he says to to approach getting more of this in your life, more happiness is horizontal relationships versus vertical relationships. And the way that he describes a vertical relationship is like a power dynamic relationship. And he says, mm-hmm. including children, and this is a thing that I think they don't describe well, but I think thinking of children and young people as whole people and not just the prologue to a person is really important and a big useful way of thinking. I don't think that means and I don't think that it's he's really saying that you can treat everyone as your equals. People are worth the same but not equal is like I think what he's saying. He's like saying what's that thing called when it's um everybody's oh value inherent value. I think it's like that now. I think we say people are inherently valuable. And he's sort of describing this. And that you should talk to children. He says you should talk to children not as though they're less than you or dumber than you, but as as though they're people and that you're connecting to their humanity. And I'm like, that's true. And also you need to explain some more things and not say some. (laughs) So like. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. 
But also that you should talk to everyone that way, including your boss. You should talk to the humanity in him and then the tasks that your boss has and you have, then you respect those tasks. But you don't suck up or brown nose. The big ones that he says are like, don't rebuke and don't praise. He says that those two things are manipulative to either praise people, like be like, good job, because you would never say good job to someone on the same level as you, he says. You would only say good job to someone below you because it's someone with mastery saying it to someone less than. And what you should instead say, he believes in a culture of encouragement, is thank you. You can thank someone, but you can't, I don't know. I don't really like this part. Well, I don't hate it. That is very much a culture thing or like a, you can change that into something that makes sense in your environment. Yeah. And there's a lot of popular stuff around pedagogy for kids. Stop saying good job. Stop saying good job to kids. You want them to learn to work and do things because of the enjoyment of them or the interest in them and not because they want to please you. Yeah. And so thank them for what they've done and don't rebuke them. Don't like say nasty stuff. That one seems pretty clear to me. Yeah. But that all of these relationships that you have with people should be based on like mutual respect and an understanding that you're equals. And I really thought, like, I think I kind of do that. I think I talk to people that way. And then this is the only part in the thing that made me tear up. This is the second time in the book that the philosopher says to the youth, and you, you are becoming my irreplaceable friend. And the first time he says it to the youth, the youth says, like, I can't even, I can't deal with that right now. And... And they just, like, move on. And then the second time he that's says so it. Relatable. I know. I was like, that's the best dialogue in this whole thing. <laughs> and then the second time he says, that really scares me. The youth says it scares me to be your friend. And the philosopher asks him why. And he says, because I've never had a friendship with someone who's so much older than me, who has so much more experience than me. And I don't know, like, if I can do it. I don't know if I can do it right. I'm like tearing up now. But I felt that I'm so just stri- I'm just imagining the author because the author's really identifying with the philosopher. Well, they're two so I feel authors. Like and they yeah, have, the authors, but they're still, yeah. they're not the youth in the situation. But they're like, you're so much older and cleverer and prettier and handsome. <laughs> you're so much stronger. You have so much bigger muscles than me. And I don't know. This is, like, going to be a really clear difference of how we think about things, Sophie, because I <laughs> I was like, oh, no, they're the youth because they're, like, they can picture themselves in this situation. And when I was hearing it, I felt that so much because I have three friends who are in their 60s, and when I really got close to them, I was in my 20s and they were in their 50s. I remember this feeling. I still have it now that I'm like, what do I have to offer these people? They are, like, giving me so much, like, wisdom. They gave me, like— material things that they had because they were older, a place to live, one of these people. And I just was like, what do I even have to offer? It wasn't on the top of my feelings. But when he said this, I was like, I recognize this feeling that even though theoretically, I think like we're all equal. And of course, I have something to offer my friends that have more experience and wisdom than me. I was like, oh, no, that's a real fear that indicates that I am thinking of a lot of relationships, I think, as hierarchical, even if I'm also not, you know? Mm. And I was like, oh, okay, that's worth looking at. Okay, yeah. Do you have relationships like that where you either feel kind of like thinking like you're the big one or the little one or the, <laughs> like the, 
if you're the fourth grader or the third grader? I think I ha it's easy for me to do with other comedians because I can quantify it, right? They've been going longer than me. They are much more famous. They've done more TV shows. Like I can, I can point at where they are in quotes superior to me. But that that's not friendships. That's just people that exist in the. I don't do it with friends. I think I find it very easy to do with people I don't know. And I think I do that with people I don't know as a safety thing to be like, oh, okay, so I don't have to be as good as them because they are. Yeah. better than me and that is so so it's okay for me to not be as good mm -hmm. or like it's okay for me to say no to this gig because it is below me like I don't need to do an unpaid 20 minute set in this thing because I am better than that now I can do this other thing instead so I only I think I use it as a safety thing but I don't think I use it with people I'm actually close with well you better pay attention Sophie okay. because that's the key to happiness Okay, I, I do think that. I think there's something in that. But also because what I'm thinking of is like when we're talking about trolls or people we don't know on the internet, there is a power dynamic issue in that where if you only focus on the vertical friendships, like the people who are in your life, in the actual real life, and not some weird username on the internet, then that is what matters and not those other people. Who's, because they don't see themselves as your equal, as a vertical with you. They see themselves as... Like, it's like sometimes when if you reply to a troll, they're, they're like, oh, my God, I didn't think you'd see it. Like, they're yeah. not commenting because they don't think that you're watching what they're doing. They don't yeah. think they matter to you, which is why they're screaming so loudly. Yeah. So I think there is something in that. He says that also I like it when it's like an action item. So one thing is like the ser the happiness is service to others. I'm not I don't really think that happiness is a feeling of service to others, but I think service to others as a direction to happiness makes sense to me. And in this same way he says, if you don't know where to start, then start on building one horizontal relationship, one relationship that is actually horizontal, that you are telling someone what you think and accepting what they think, accepting their tasks, accepting what yours are. And once you build one, it will like spread to your other ones. If you just focus on that, that will help you reach happiness. And I, li I like that. I like that. And I think it's true like for the that. troll thing. It's like that. Yeah. Look around at the real people in your life. Okay, this is the fifth night. This is the last one. Do you want to know what the last one's called? I do. It's called The Fifth Night. To live in earnest in the here and now. Okay. Yeah, right? Not a lot I mean, to you, disagree you, you with don't there. Need, you don't need, yeah, that's fine. Okay. I think really... Some mindfulness. That's kind of it. It's like the yeah. only thing that exists is right now. He describes this thing. Life, if you're looking at it as a line from one point to another point... You can do that, but then most of your life is just waiting for the thing to happen. And that is a way to excuse a lot of your life as the part in the waiting room where you're waiting until you've written a novel. And then you're like, okay, but then I'm going to do it. And instead, you should look at your whole life as a series of dots, which is really what a line is made up of. I don't <laughs> Just in case you didn't know. And every dot is the moment that you're in. And you can do with that moment what you can do. This is a little helpful to me. I'm trying to, I'm writing a novel. I've never gotten all the way through a novel before. This is the kind of thing where I'm thinking a lot about it in my life right now. It's like, it's not a book that I'm trying to write. It's a thousand words today and it's a thousand mm. words tomorrow. And it's like the one day at a time stuff. It is helpful to me. I think he really started with something that was, can anyone really agree that there's no trauma and ended one with, it's good to be more present. And I'm yeah. like, oh. 
You really, you really chilled out did, there, didn't you? <laughs> he uh, ironically became more likable <laughs> as all this. It was about proving a point, wasn't it? It's like, hey, what if you... I would have respected that so much if it ended with him saying, them, the two people, with them saying, hey, you know the first chapter? That was bullshit. But you, you hated us, didn't you? You hated us. And we feel fine. We feel fine about that. And here's how. Okay. I don't know how much that taught me to be okay with being disliked. <laughs> But I really liked the blushing female parable. Yeah. I mean, I think that the whole thing and what I wanted from it was like a reason that it's okay to be disliked. But really, I think it is sort of the only thing it can offer and the only thing it did offer is the repetition of it is the only way that you can exist. It is the only way you Mm. can do anything in the world is if some people dislike you. I didn't want to say it in the beginning because I was sure he was going to say it. But I read something at some point where someone said, if you gave everyone in the world a million dollars, there would always be one person, at least one person who said, why didn't you give a million dollars to this other thing instead? Like, why didn't you give me a million and a half? (laughs) Or, oh, I can't, but oh, look at you showing off, giving me a million. Like, it doesn't matter what you do. There will always be people who find reasons to be upset, negative, hateful, spiteful, whatever, because it doesn't have to do with you. It's an actual impossibility to always do the right thing and be like perfection doesn't exist. There will always be people who are offended by your boundaries and you cannot give enough of yourself and you cannot do enough to make everyone go, okay, now I accept you other than literally don't exist. Yeah. And that's what he says. The only way you can really have no problem is if you live like alone in the universe. And I think that that when it it does help me to look at like if the options are everybody likes me because I don't say anything or I decide to do something and say something, and and it is certain that many people will not like what I say, that is a clearer dichotomy for me than what I think is the middle road, which is like, I can kind of say it and everyone will love and still keep everyone on board. And he says something a, a few times in this that I really liked, because whenever I read something like this, I'm always like, this is fine. This would be great if we all just agreed to it. If we all agreed to look at our own tasks and trust other people, but other people aren't going to do that. And so I'm going to be doing it for it. And nobody else is going to be doing their own tasks. And he says a few times in it, the philosopher says that the key is to start now with no interest in whether other people will join you, to not wait for everybody to be on board or to know that everybody is going to agree with you, but instead to like move forward now without knowledge about how they're going to react. And I I like that. I like that. I think there's some good in this book. There's also some absolute abhorrent bullshit in this book. Listen, I just came here today to change your mind about one thing, and that's that trauma does not exist, Sophie. Yes, I'm going to note that down in my little help help notebook, help hole notebook. I'll remember that for future episodes. Your help holio? <laughs> no. We're going to make no. those. We're going to sell those. <laughs> We're going to sell help holios. All right. That was it. That was the first book. We did it. We did the first book. Well done. I'm very excited. Book. So if this was a normal episode and not the first one, this is where we would then like to pass on our accumulated wisdom to our listeners. So if you have a dilemma, 
an issue, a problem, anything where you need our advice, email us at hello at helpful.com and we shall help you help yourself in a future episode. This was the whole thing. This was the very first episode. Sophie, we, we did one. We did an episode. We also have a Patreon where we release bonus episodes and there's already two bonus episodes out right now from when we watched the movie Yes Man. In the bonus episodes, we're going to be... It's not going to be books. It's going to be anything else. Movies, uh, apps, documentaries, stuff like that. Fun stuff. <laughs> Hank is, has opinions. So you can <laughs> sign up for our Patreon on patreon.com forward slash helphole. You can also go to helphole.com and find it through there. And you can start being a patron from three pounds a month. And it uh, really helps us a lot. Yes, please. Thank you. And also, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And most importantly, please tell people about it if you liked it. This is new. You can get, you can be get it on the it's ground floor. Get your you friends in. You might be the in. first. There's a good chance you're the first ever listener. It's, it's you. It's you. You decide, you decide the future of the pod. Uh, <laughs> you can already listen to our second episode uh, where I present a book that's going to teach you how to flirt. It's yeah. the book Flirtology by Gene Smith. And that's already on your feed now. And then the next episode after that will be out in two weeks. And from then on, we'll be on here every other week. Thank you to our wonderful producer, Amanda Redman, and to Nikki Elson for the jingle. Bye. Bye. Bye.